Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 53, on Ted Bundy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are ready for this guy. This guy, if you don't know who this guy is. Well, I think a lot of people do. And I think right, I right now, a lot of people just learned about him because of this Netflix series that came out. Right. That's true. A lot of people are probably watching it on Netflix now. It's a hot topic. And there's a new movie coming out about him with Zac Efron playing Ted Bundy. Yeah, it's called like shockingly evil or something, something vile. Like and... Yeah, it'll be interesting. I want to see it. Yeah, because this guy is literally like probably the worst serial killer in American history, I would say. The most notorious just, I mean, obviously there's been other bad ones like John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer and Charles Manson stuff, but and HH Holmes is probably worse than all of them. But I don't know, man. This guy was a complete savage, like in every sense of the term. HH mm. H. Holmes had a whole torture castle. I think he was the worst. Was he in the U.S.? Yep. Oh, for some reason I kept thinking he was in London or something. I don't know why. No, they think that he could possibly oh, have right, gone right, to right. London and been Jack the Ripper as well, which we should do a oh, podcast on. Oh, that. that's right. But H.H. Yeah. H. Holmes was a gruesome motherfucker. He was in his death hotel. He was probably the worst. But Ted Bundy, literally, yeah, I'd say he's definitely one of the worst. He's horrifying. He is like next level evil. And, and I think the big reason for that is because he is so smart and cunning and devious that yes. it just makes him even more dangerous and, and really interesting to look at just from a, you know, investigative standpoint because... He's just such a weird, weird creature. In a psychology standpoint, like it's, he's just so odd. You know, this year we watched, uh, probably a lot of you guys watched Shane Dawson's documentary on, or Sociopaths, series yeah, on yeah. sociopaths. Yeah. yeah. He's like that. But to a T a plus psychopath. Yeah. Plus he's just insane. Probably mentally ill. But he's very unique and there's so much to talk about. So before so, yeah, we get we're gonna, into that. We're going to talk about his life. And obviously we watched the Conversations with the Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes, the Netflix uh, documentary that's out there that some of you guys have seen as well. And we're just blown away by it. So I'm sure you guys will find today's episode really interesting, probably disturbing a bit because it is so gruesome and violent. But uh, we will try to <laughs> keep it down a bit. But let's get into uh, today's stories. The first story I've got for you is coming out of Antarctica because NASA scientists were doing a type of exploratory mission down there where they like scan the ice with lasers to kind of oh, check cool. and see, you know, how thick it is, how, you know, how much melting is happening. And what they discovered is pretty startling. Essentially, they found a cavity that's two thirds the size of Manhattan, which is large enough to contain about 14 a billion tons of ice before it melted so all that ice was there and now it's melted oh my god that's a lot of ice that's so that scary melted. so they're the down size there of manhattan yeah that's wow. a, that's huge that's really really big and i mean that's that's going to have a, an effect on sea levels so scientists are kind of freaking out a little bit because the explosive rate at which the ice in antarctica is melting is unlike anything we've ever seen and it continues to pick up every year oh, that's so freaking rapidly melting it's so scary that it seems to not even be an issue like was it talked about last night i didn't watch the state of the union but was it even mentioned i don't think climate change was mentioned at all that's so disappointing which is just stupid because everyone should be talking about that i mean the <laughs> climate is changing it's getting warming uh warmer like today i just saw 
an article come out that said last year was like the warmest year on record or something or this year or something like that. Like literally the earth is heating up year after year after year and the ice is just going to continue melting, which is going to cause sea levels to rise and a bunch of other chain reaction events. It makes me like afraid to have kids. Well, it, it definitely makes you think about the future of humanity if we don't fucking figure out a solution. Or figure out some way to negate this damage that we're doing to the planet. But at the same time, it's like, is this part of the cycle? Like, even if we did try to reduce emissions, would it be enough to prevent the earth from warming? I mean, that's a whole debate about that. But I don't know. too far along? Have we fucked it up too much already? I think is the question, too. I don't know. Because I don't think this just naturally happened. Maybe it does naturally happen, but we clearly sped up the process a ton. Like, maybe over time... some this is supposed to happen well yeah i guess you can look at all the ozone layer and how there's so many holes in it and you've damaged that and we're killing all of our oxygen our trees and everything that Mm -hmm. help clean the atmosphere so i think we're i mean we're definitely attributing to it but sometimes i think maybe there's you know some type of cycle of the planet where it kind of has to reset itself which is absolutely terrifying to think about especially why would we want to speed that up because we are speeding it up (laughs) i know So at the end of the day, whether like people can make that argument all day, but like, why would we want to speed it up? Maybe that's a thousand year process and we're making it a hundred year process. Yeah. Like, you know, why would we want to do that? Are people not worried about their future kids and like their grandkids? I I just don't think people are really thinking about it too much because they're right now. There's not you don't see an immediate impact on people's daily lives. And I think until it, it starts doing that. You know, even though a lot of people do see the effects of it who live by the coast, especially. Yeah. Well, those coastal cities are going to be really hurting, especially places like Miami, Venice. Yeah. We're talking oh, about. yeah. All that's going to be underwater because this glacier, which is called the Th- Thwaites Glacier, is approximately the size of Florida. And it's already behind about 4% of global sea rise. And the disappearance of the ice mass would cause sea levels to rise by about two feet as well by making surrounding glaciers more likely to melt rapidly, which could cause an eight foot rise in sea level. Just an eight foot rise in sea level would be enough to probably affect a lot of sea, uh, a lot of cities at sea level, you know, eight feet of water that is there permanently. What do you do? You know, I don't know. It's going to have to, I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see how things shake out, but yeah. Interesting. Horrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Today's episode is just full of horrifying news, actually. (laughs) But yeah, stuff really scares me so much. It does, it does, and I don't know. I don't know what to do about it. But the other story that I had for you guys today is uh, one that's kind of been making the rounds and has kind of popped into mainstream media as well, and that is a Harvard uh, astronomy professor, uh, Avi Loeb who's literally like one of the top astronomers in the world. He's like an Ivy League professor. He's, he's I think, the head of the, the department there, yeah, at, <laughs> at Harvard. So he, he basically released like an academic paper about the giant uh, space rock or object that was dubbed uh, Uma Uma, I think is how you pronounce it. And it was first discovered in uh, by Hawaiian astronomers in 2017, because it was literally this interstellar object that came flying from another star system outside of our solar system into our solar system and is now on its way around Jupiter. And this Harvard astronomer basically came to the conclusion 
that this is some type of extraterrestrial spacecraft or you know it's some piece of it like a light sail um some type of equipment that's used by extraterrestrials to get around space wow that's and wild. so it's shaken up. Yeah, it's really shaken up. Well, things. I knew about this this morning that this news had broken into the mainstream because I watch The View sometimes. Well, I watch it every day, not going to lie. I've been watching it for like six years. So it's like a tradition thing for me. But the mainstream media has caught wind of the UFOs today. Um, they were talk. They were talking about it in the most... I guess woke way I've ever heard. Like, yeah, you know, very it was, open. To it was it. very yeah. open. They were all like, "Yep, there's probably aliens." And that's the thing that's is, I think shook. it's kind of becoming a more universally accepted idea that aliens are probably already visiting us, and especially with all of the UFO stuff that's been coming out, I think yeah. a lot more people are like really wrapping their heads around the likelihood that we are being contacted by aliens yeah. in some way, shape, or form, or they're cruising around uh, above us in space. So yeah, yeah. Megan McCain brought up the Phoenix Lights today as well. It was pretty cool. They showed a they yeah, showed she a video she of it. Saw them, which is really interesting. I think I don't know if she saw them or if she just like remembers it because she lived there. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was really interesting to see them talking about it. But I guess we'll have to wait and see if this thing comes back. But it's out flying past Jupiter right now, and I don't know where it's headed, but. This astronomy professor from Harvard thinks it's some type of extraterrestrial uh, craft or piece of a craft. So it's really interesting because there's a lot of, you know, scientists and astronomers that just straight up are like, there's no way possible that 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 thing was a spacecraft or aliens or anything like that. So can you go later? But um, let's get right into Ted Bundy. So first, before we start... I want to thank our first sponsor. The $2 Small Me Cafe is the answer to your day. The question is whether you go with a rich caramel frappe paired with a warm cinnamon roll, a sweet caramel macchiato paired with a blueberry muffin made with real blueberries, or a hot chocolate paired with a classic apple fritter. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Don't worry, there's never a wrong choice. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. But let's get into uh, the notorious Ted Bundy. All right. Oh, man. So the Ted Bundy is just a different type of animal, as you will see. <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, talk a little bit about his early life, where he came from. It's always interesting to see where serial killers come from and you start seeing patterns in serial killers upbringings. Uh, but it's interesting because Ted Bundy did have a fairly, as far as what we know, a fairly normal uh, childhood. That's what he tells us too. But anyway, so Ted Bundy was born Theodore Robert Cowell on no and born on November 24th, 1946 in Burlington, Vermont. Ted's mom was Eleanor Cowell who went, by her middle name, Louise. His father's identity was never determined with any degree of certainty, which is interesting. His birth certificate assigned the father to a salesman and Air Force veteran named Lloyd Marshall. But Louise later claimed that she had been seduced by a sailor whose name may have been Jack Worthington. Years later, investigators would find no record of anyone by that name in the Navy or Merchant Marine archives. Some family members expressed suspicions that Bundy might have been fathered by Luis's own violent, abusive father, Samuel Cal. 
but no oh, evidence has geez. ever been cited to support or refute this. Yeah, that's frightening too. Oh, that's freaky. So could have been some incest involved there. So he's basically like a bastard child, like born out of wedlock and just like kind of a, it seems like a mistake, right? Like kind of. Do people still use that term bastard yeah, child? Yeah, I hear that all the time. I don't, I don't know. I, I, guess I feel like the only time I've heard that was like Game of Thrones. Like, I don't think people refer to people like that anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know he, he is a bastard child. So, you know. For what? him, we can call him that. For fucking Ted Bundy, I'm going to call him a bastard. He was a mistake. A big mistake. <laughs> A major God, mistake. A lot of people still be alive if you never was born. A major fucking mistake. Yeah. But Ted growing up was described as the best son in the world and a normal active boy. It's so bizarre. It is. <laughs> and he wanted to be an attorney or a politician growing up. Very smart, witty kid. I think from a young age, he was always just like really um, clearly intelligent, um, both academically, um, but it seems like socially he had some issues there. Like, Oh, he was yeah. kind of the odd man out growing up. It was just like something was a little off about him. Yeah. It seemed like even from when they were weird. talking about him when he was younger, he didn't have tons of friends. Um, he's described as being like people know him, I think, because compared to other serial killers, he's decent looking. I oh. mean, I, you know, people say that Zach Efron looks a lot like him and I'm kind of like, uh... No, maybe with like a fuck ton of makeup, but like yeah, he's ugly. I don't understand this whole like Ted Bundy so attractive thing. Like, yeah, maybe compared to John Wayne Gacy, he's like a little better looking, but like, yeah, yeah, he's not. Even if I didn't know what I know about him, he is not like good looking to me. He like freaks me out. So that whole situation is weird anyway. Yeah, no, I, I don't understand that. And with the new Netflix documentary, there's like articles like. Women yeah. are freaking out about how attractive Ted Yeah, Bundy there's been is. tons of controversy about it and a lot of controversy over them casting Zac Efron because people think it's yeah. like making light of it. I think it's kind of fucked up, honestly. Do you? I, I think it's kind of fucked up that, you know, I'm all for like retelling history, but at the same time, I think this is exactly what Ted Bundy would want. Yeah, is it's for true. us to he'd be create like a so movie happy. about him. He'd be, yeah, yeah he'd, be his, he'd be at the premiere if he was alive. Mm -hmm. He'd be like thrilled. Yep, he would. So for the first three years of his life, Ted lived in the Philadelphia home of his maternal grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cowell, who raised him as their son to avoid the social stigma that accompanied birth outside of wedlock. So it's like, hide him away. Well, basically, I don't think his mom even wanted him initially. And so she was about to like give him up for like adoption or yeah. like orphan yeah. him in a way. And his grandparents stepped in and, and took him in. Mm-hmm. So family, friends, and even young Ted were told that his grandparents were his parents and that his mother was his older sister. Not a good way to start out. Yeah, no. It's going to set him up for some trauma later. But anyway, he eventually discovered the truth, of course. Ted had a lifelong resentment toward his mother for never talking to him about his real father and for leaving him to discover who his true parents were on his own instead of telling him. Apparently, when Ted's mom gave birth to him, she had him in a in a home for unwed mothers. So weird that they used to have yeah, places like that. I was going to say that's bizarre. Unwed mothers. Single mom, you mean? <laughs> no, because like having a child out of wedlock was such like so yeah, frowned upon then. back then. No, I know. But today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. However, she didn't intend to keep Ted. And after she gave birth, she left him there and went home. However, her father insisted that she needed to go back and uh, get him and bring him home. In some interviews, Ted spoke warmly of his grandparents and said that he identified with, respected, and clung to his grandfather. In 1987, however, he and other 
family said that his grandfather Samuel was a bully and a bigot who hated blacks, Italians, Catholics, and Jews. Wow. So some hate there. Ted's grandmother also grandfather or Ted's grandfather also beat his wife and the family dog and swung neighborhood cats by their tails. Oh my gosh. I was going to say like I, I with serial killers. I feel like it starts really, really young. Like whether it's the abuse or the abuse of animals or, you know, just things like that. Well, it says his grandfather did that. Yeah. So he saw his grandfather doing it. So maybe his grandfather was, the real root of so much of this. I mean, there's probably a lot we don't even know about things that happened to him or his things he might have forgotten about or Yeah. Or like, blocked out or Yeah, or blocked out. Yeah. Who really knows? But Ted once threw uh Luisa's younger sister, Julia, down a flight of stairs for oversleeping. Or mm-hmm. Ted's grandfather did, I'm sorry. He also apparently sometimes spoke aloud to unseen presences, and at least once he flew into a violent rage when the question of who Ted's parents were. Ted described his grandmother as a timid and obedient woman who periodically underwent electroconvulsive therapy for depression. So it seems to me like there's already some clear depression that probably runs in the family because, right, depression is a a genetic disease. I think, like you, sometimes yes, sometimes there's genetic links run in the family. Yes. Electro, God, I cannot imagine therapy. Oh, that's freaky. It Normally is. They'd like put something in your mouth and then shock you. Can you imagine going through that? What the hell do they think that was doing? Like, oh my gosh. I think going to like the dentist is bad. Imagine doing that. Ugh. Seriously, they, they'll so do freaky. that, but they won't give you like, you know, some ecstasy or acid to fix that problem. <laughs> they weren't you know? going to give people that back then. They'd rather shock you like the electric chair. Or today or ever. No. <laughs> Why would you give someone that though when they're like if they're having like... No, I'm just saying that there's studies that's showing oh, that for depression. psilocybin, yeah. things like that actually can be a cure for depression is what I'm saying. Yes, yeah, psilocybin Instead for sure. of yeah. electroconvulsive therapy. Like, yeah. The fuck? <laughs> but Ted occasionally exhibited disturbing behavior even at an early age. Julia recalled awakening one day from a nap to find herself surrounded by knives with her three-year-old nephew, Ted, standing by the bed, smiling. Dude, he was born like this. I'm telling you. Born killer. I don't know. Like, it's so interesting. We've talked about, like, you know, serial killers. Is it something you're born with? Can you be born evil? We have that conversation a lot. And I think Ted Bundy's such an interesting example because... I mean, he had a little trauma in his life for sure. It was like a little unstable and he didn't know who his real dad was. And his grandpa swung cats around by their fucking tails, you know, but like he didn't have any like major, major thing happen that would cause you to then go be a serial killer. And so I truly believe that Ted Bundy was born like that like something is wrong there's in his maybe brain. a killer gene or something or like i don't know if it's a gene i, don't, I think maybe it's just like it could be the way his brain chemistry was or something yeah something he like was that, born or, with like a chemical imbalance that yeah doesn't allow him to i don't know care for anything yeah something like that or just like the the need to to kill i don't know i think some people are born with it because you know think about it a lot of people go through traumatic events like way worse than some of what these serial killers go to go through and so yes i think that um going through traumatic things such as like you know being abused as a child that kind of stuff definitely contributes to being 
a serial killer, but at the same time, I think a lot of that you're just born with. And I think that maybe it doesn't help you to suppress it if you have a lot of anger, you know, but maybe there are people out there who have good lives, but have that same feeling. But because they have good supportive families and stuff, they're able to like conceal it or overcome hide it. it, you know, or overcome it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's really interesting. I'm surprised there's not more people researching serial killers and like, you know, once they're gone, dissecting their brains and trying to figure out what's actually, I if there is do. some type of, chemical was his thing. brain ever dissected i think they said that they like looked at he was looked at by a psychologist and they said his brain was different but i don't know what the exact details were on that yeah yeah i don't think um i don't think they ever dissected his brain or anything or actually figured out what it was but anyway in 1950 louise changed her surname from cal to nelson and after being encouraged by multiple family members she left philadelphia with her son to live with cousins alan and jane scott in Tacoma, Washington. In 1951, Luis met Johnny Bundy, a hospital cook at an adult singles night at Tacoma's First Methodist Church. They married later that year and John Bundy formally adopted Ted. Johnny and Luis conceived four children of their own and although Johnny tried to include his adoptive son in camping trips and other family activities, Ted remained distant. So a very transient childhood bouncing around between his parent uh between his mom and his grandparents and then she, her his mom brought in this new man johnny which is where he gets his last name bundy and i think he really was kind of the odd man out and i think there was probably something special in a disturbing sense about him and the fact that he felt so alone and isolated and didn't have didn't really have the friends that he said he did and probably was alone a lot and in his head a lot had no way to you know work through the feelings he was having definitely led to you know the destruction later because ted describes his childhood very differently than it really was ted said that his childhood was really great and he always had a ton of friends to play with and do yeah. activities with he talks about his whole life like it was really great that's why we really have no idea like did he get abused at all like think about it if the grandfather beat his own wife um it's possible he did beat him as a kid but he, di he didn't really talk about anything negative that happened to him. He no. wanted a very, maybe he thought it would make him seem more innocent or more believable to be innocent if he didn't have all this fucked up things happen to him. But, well, that's the thing is we don't know if he's lying or not. We don't know if he's concocting his story of his life or if it's really But we know happened. that a lot of it is a lie. Right. Because, yeah, he, he made it sound like he was really, really popular. He was really smart. He was like top of the class an athlete and he was like none of that shit yeah he described himself as one of the boys yeah but he totally wasn't he was yeah he was like always the odd odd dude out and it, he had a mad unibrow right did yeah. you notice that yeah it was like straight across was it yeah oh his yearbook god. photo god but sandy holt ted's childhood friend describes john bundy as being a really great dad to him Johnny and Ted's mom were really involved with their children. Their family were churchgoers every Sunday. They were all involved in Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, etc. However, she also says that Ted was just different. For a long time growing up, he had a bad speech impediment and would get made fun of often. She said that he just didn't fit in. For example, at Boy Scouts, Ted was the one who was always struggling to learn how to tie the ropes right, shoot the gun right. He also had a temper and apparently liked to scare and prank people. Yeah, when I started hearing that, I'm like, 
ah, so it's building and building. He's yeah. He's feeding off this negativity that he's receiving. Yeah, he was being bullied. He was totally being bullied. And that's why bullying is seriously such But he an probably issue. was like pretty weird. Like, you know, he was probably a weird kid. And yeah. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't looking. Maybe he didn't really want acceptance. So he let, because, you know, he is this weird special individual in the sense that he feeds off of all of that. Feeds off his anger. In high school, he wanted to do something. He wanted to be something that he wasn't. He wanted to prove to everyone that he was capable of succeeding. Ted Ted said that some people did see him as shy or introverted because he didn't want to go to school dances and wasn't into going out drinking, but that he wasn't an outcast in any way. He says that in a documentary too. He's like, I wasn't an outcast in any way. Oh yeah. He's so, he's so full of himself and hero complex. Yeah, he does. And he, he acts like he's famous. Like he starts like acting like he's like a celebrity. Like he's like looks around at people like they're his fans. Yeah, he does. Did you notice that in the documentary? He definitely has this condescending When he's being interviewed and stuff, nature. Like, you're blessed to be listening to me right now or to see me. Like when he's walking in public, he would like It's wave literally and like smile. he thought he was Jesus his whole life or yeah, something. Yeah, he had like, a he was major. A... Yeah, he yeah, reminds me of Charles uh Charles Manson's mentality. Yeah. Which, yeah, the fact that between killers, it's interesting. But in 1966, Ted graduated high school and started attending the University of Washington, where he got an undergraduate degree in psychology, funny enough. Of course, he goes and gets a psychology degree, probably because no full knowing that it'll help him understand people better. And, you know, who knows what else. But while he was there, he met a woman named Diane Marjorie Jean Edwards. Or maybe he wanted to understand his own brain. He knew he was fucked up and he wanted to know why. Or Yeah, yeah. Or he wanted to try to diagnose himself. Is that psychology? Does that even give you the ability to diagnose things? I don't know. I don't know that much no, about it psychology. Would, no, but he can, like, he Understand. would know about it. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. But her and Ted hit it off. And for the first time, Ted had a girlfriend. After college, he decided he wanted to enter politics and was described as a clean-cut Richard Nixon type of conservative. Ted said that he was really against the tactics used on the anti-war movement that had been going on, which was like trashing the public places and people just acting out of control. So Ted started volunteering to come to work on the campaign to get the governor of Seattle at the time re-elected. And one of the reasons that Ted was into politics was because a large part of politics is how your image looks, which is what yeah. Ted was all about his image. Oh, yeah. And he always... And he can bullshit. Politicians are right. full of shit. And I think he, yeah. he was like, oh. You can trick people. Yeah. You can fool people. You can... It's all about what you present to them. Is what people receive you as. So he really liked that. And it gave, you know, made him well liked because he was kind of you know, getting into a social situation that he wasn't ever in before and getting good feedback from it. So people wanted to trust Ted. In the 1970s, the idea of a serial murder was a new thing to society. People had never heard of someone just going on a killing spree. The term serial killer didn't even exist, which is interesting. All the way up to the 1970s, nobody had figured out that, you know, somebody could be a serial killer. Or maybe they just never were able to put a name to it, but yeah, maybe they didn't realize that there would be someone out there who kills for fun, you know? Yeah, because at the time, I think the only other person was Charles Manson, right? In 1971, mm-hmm. Charles Manson. Yeah. So he was like kind of the first serial killer 
with Bundy. Yeah. But I can't diff- believe it was uh, it was until then that they waited to say serial serial killer. Yeah. That's so weird. 1971. Wow. Well, I think it's also because serial killers oftentimes, well, not all the time, but oftentimes move locations between states and just the the uh sharing of information was so yeah minimal compared to now but still they but like still, knew like, of serial some, killers yeah. they knew of jack the ripper they knew of hh H. holmes like there were serial killers yeah madame lalari they didn't really know that yeah like there was clearly people that killed for fun i don't know that's bizarre that's weird but the 1970s was when the disappearances started in april of 1974 a young woman disappeared in washington her name was linda ann healy and she was a 21 year old student at the University of Washington. Guess who else goes to the University of Washington? Ted Bundy. She disappeared from her apartment that she lived in with five other students. Linda was a local weather reporter for a radio station. Every morning she would come on the radio to talk about the weather, what the weather was going to be like. According to her roommate, her alarm went off at around 5.30 a.m., but Linda wasn't in her room, and she didn't show up for work. She was gone, which was very unusual for her to not show up for work. She's like a very reliable and responsible young woman and it wasn't like her to just disappear and not tell anybody where the hell she was going one of her roommates said that the night linda went missing she was in her room studying when linda came into her room at about 11 30 p.m she said they talked for a little and that she seemed to be in a pretty good mood and then at around 12 a.m she said that she was going to bed so when linda didn't show up the next day the newspapers proceeded to announce the public that she was missing so she was last seen around midnight that night and then she just disappeared out of her room without a trace really so scary very scary so at this point there was a crime scene search the police got involved and during the search they found a substantial amount of blood under her pillow on her sheets and the crazy thing was linda's bed was perfectly made so you didn't notice anything was wrong until you pulled back the covers oh weird so this is thought to be ted bundy's first victim which I've also heard things that said that there's uh, I don't know if it's a rumor or if somehow he alluded to this, but it's possible Ted Bundy's first killing was done at a really young age, uh, killed an eight year old uh, girl, I believe. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's again, I don't know if it's a I don't know if that's fact or it's just a rumor or something, but his first victim was supposedly killed when he was like really young, like 13 or something, killed a little girl or something. So that interesting weird so but officially uh healy was uh ted's first victim and he had talked about how he was like dating a girl that summer right and she broke up with him yes so like right before this happened he was like dating this girl who was really really into her and Mm -hmm. she kind of like ditched him and he really couldn't handle the rejection and he said that's that whole summer was a blur for him and that's when he started killing people so he kind of channeled his rage against her because he loved her and he didn't want to harm her on like random other women, you know, but it's clearly something that had been inside him for a long time, but was invoked by the breakup. Yeah. Yeah. That's an extreme reaction to a breakup. Yeah. Well, it's not just a breakup. It's like rejection. It's the, it's the feeling of rejection that could trigger someone like that. Yeah. God. But in June 1974, only two months after Linda goes missing, another woman went missing. She also lived in the University of Washington area close to where Linda lived. Her name was Jorgen Hawkins, and she was last seen on a Monday night after she was visiting a frat house and was returning home 
which was about a half a block away down an alley. Just like Linda, she was not the person to just take off and not tell people where she was. So because two women from the same college had gone missing within two months of each other, people in the area started getting really freaked out. There were still no hints as to where they went or who took them. They li- like Literally, there was no evidence um, that they could find to help them figure out who could have done it. And that was the big problem back in the 70s is there's no DNA. There's no like mm-hmm. technology, really. It's very old school uh, crime scene forensics, like looking for fibers, hair, yeah, blood. But they can't do DNA testing, which probably would have caught him way earlier than than they did. But yeah, so they're trying to figure out who it is. Law enforcement is telling everybody to stay out of the alleyways at night. People are scared. People are actually locking their doors because like back then, they, nobody locked shit up, which is so weird to me. Like they didn't, they never locked their houses. The sorority house is probably open because yeah. whoever went, whoever oh, took yeah. these girls, you know, went into the sorority house so, to get the first one. So I was in a sorority in college and I never lived in the sorority house, but girl, we had guys, we had people break in more than once um, to the house, like over time. There was one while I was there and then there was another one before that, but someone had broken in. So we had to, there was like a creepy dude that would like hang out around the back of our house. Yeah, so we God. finally That's started. Like a, that we was had like to, a sketchy area too. Yeah. Yeah. We had to make a rule my freshman year. That was the year it happened that you have to lock the back door because before it was just like a free for all. But yeah, um, there was all kind. there was another um, group of girls that I knew that lived in a house that had someone break in while they were in it. Really? Yeah, like college houses because they're yeah, probably not that safe. That. Yeah, I remember, Do you remember that. that. I forget which sorority it was, but that's fucking. No, it was just a house. It was oh, just it was like house? someone's house. Yeah. I thought one of the other houses, sorority house, got broken. Probably, out. honestly, but yeah, it's kind of creepy. Yeah, and back then it was super easy to break in because literally the doors were open. Yeah, people would leave the keys in the ignition of their cars. Dude, my mom is from this generation. <laughs> She didn't lock shit when I was a kid. Like both my parents, my my dad would check it more often, but my mom would leave our car in the driveway with the car door open, keys in the ignition. People just didn't have the same fears that we do today. No, they just never even thought about that. I mean, somebody I would never would do, do that. that. I can't imagine going to bed without like locking all our shit. Oh, seriously, and, like, setting the alarm. And... Especially now, I'm like paranoid. I'm like yeah. locking everything I, I can. Know. Yeah. Blinds down, alarm set. Yeah, I definitely could not sleep if I knew a door was unlocked. Yeah, but after Ted graduated from the University of Washington, he decided that he wanted to go to law school. And so he started applying to a number of them. However, his test scores were not very good. And so the bigger law programs wouldn't accept him. So he was forced to attend a night school and something that he really didn't want to do. He was ashamed by it. He, got, he like, was depressed. completely humiliated by it. Yeah. I mean, huge ego, obviously, and to not get the test scores to like follow your colleagues to like, you know, the big school in that area, he had to go a different route, which was kind of embarrassing for him because it, it, also, I'm sorry. He was still dating Diane at this point though, when he moved there, this is when their relationship fell apart. I got that wrong. So, so he killed someone before that. Yes. During their relationship. Two, During, well, two, two, two went missing. Yeah. Okay, right, right, right. Yeah, Ted's Ted's in a relationship with Diane. Okay. When these two girls go missing, so because he didn't get in the school that he wanted, his relationship with Diane started falling apart. He says that during those months in the summer of 1974, Diane started to become more and more distant, which made him more and more paranoid. 
He says that he doesn't remember what happened or what he did during that summer. Yeah. Yeah, he did say that. Except the fact that he wanted to get some sort of revenge on Diane. In addition to law school, Ted also had a brief job working for the Seattle Crime Commission. Aha. Mm -hmm. Another serial killer that's somehow involved with law enforcement to try to like cover their cover their back and provide intel possibly which mm-hmm. i think that was just a planned move on his part just Probably. to help help bring legitimacy to him and his story about going to law school and stuff yeah help cover his tracks ted also uh the job gave him access to a lot of statistics on crimes he got a first-hand look at the police did when someone went missing so he knew exactly what police would look for in a crime scene much like other serial killers, they knew exactly what to hide, how to throw the police off their trail, fake evidence, things like that. So he was um, already in tune with all of that. Ted was also able to see how there is a large lack of, of communication and organization between one jurisdiction and another jurisdiction. Which could this have been the reason why Ted took women from different areas? Was it because he knew that it would be harder for law enforcement to figure it out? Yes. And I feel like any smart serial killer does this. Um, it's way harder because of the lack of communication between police departments back then. And I mean, even today, I yeah. mean, it's not flawless today. You still confuse them. I mean, it's way better. We have internet, email, and, you know. I feel like as a serial killer, the stupidest thing you could do is like have a specific killing style and always do the same thing and leave a mark thingy and like identify yourself. It's so like some of them get so like egotistical um, with it. I don't know. It's really creepy to think about though, that if these are the serial killers that we've caught, imagine the ones that have done it so sneaky that they have fooled police. You can't detect them. Yeah. Or like they've made people look like it was an accident and they weren't, wasn't. And it really scares me thinking about the, Serial killers, we haven't, serial killers that we haven't caught because they're probably worse than any of the ones we have caught and they're probably smarter. Yeah, and they could be going on for years and years and years. Yeah, I know. Which is Freaky. just terrifying. Freaky. So at this point in time, there were other girls that were starting to disappear. Between January and June of 1974, four other women besides Linda and Jorgen had disappeared around the same time. Jorgen? Yeah, this is the last name. It's Oh, it says Linda. I thought that was George Ann. George, no, it's Jorgen. Jorgen. It's the last name of the other girl, I think. What? Go look at what the other girl's name. It's uh, why am I blanking it? I don't. Know. Yeah, George Ann Hawkins. Jorgen. <laughs> Her name is uh, George Ann. George Ann. Yes. <laughs> Jorgen. Jorgen. Like you're fired. That was fired. bad. Jorgen. That was so bad. Oh, it is. It It is Jordan. <laughs> God. Silly me. But four other women besides Linda and Jorgen. Jorgen. <laughs> Stop. Jorgen. Linda and Jorgen. Jorgen. Jorgen had disappeared around the same time, all within Western Washington and Northern Oregon region. A woman named Donna Gale Manson disappeared from the Evergreen State College near Olympia, Washington. Susan Rancourt disappeared from the Center of Washington State College in Ellensburg, Washington, which is interesting. That's where my parents are. I just thought that was interesting because um, it it's like it's two and a half hours uh, east of Seattle. So it's kind of like a tiny little rural town. The fact that Ted Bundy may have been out there is very creepy. 
Very creepy. Roberta Parks disappeared from Oregon State University campus in Corvallis. Brenda Ball disappeared from the Seattle area. In less than six months, there were six women who were all the same age group and honestly looked very similar. Brunette, pretty. They, I mean, isn't it interesting how all of these girls that go missing that are connected with Ted all look very similar? It's very creepy. They do. They all have a similar personality. I mean, sorry, similar, similar persona, yeah. I meant to say. Yeah. Um, they all have like the same middle parts. Like most of them I noticed had like middle parts yeah. and dark, dark eyes, but lighter hair most of the time. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. It's, it's just, it, he's, he was clearly, which I, it's honestly kind of crazy that he was able to t- like track these targets down so quickly and find girls that looked like his type so fast. It seems. Yeah. Like it seemed like that's all he did was like stalking and prowling around looking I'm for sure that is. his next victim. So freaky. It is freaky. Once word got out that there were this many missing women in this amount of time, people started freaking out and fearing for their lives. Mass panic across Washington, especially. People were like buying guns, they were buying locks. Like it was just crazy. People were terrified that there was this murderer running loose uh, in the area and no one knew who he was or where they were because there was no leads no answers about who took these missing women or what had happened to them so at this point people started believing that it was probably one person or a specific group of people doing these killings but no one had come up with the term serial killer so ted and diane eventually broke up and later later on ted met a woman named liz uh Kluffer. they Kluffer. almost got met they all they almost got married Liz had a daughter and the three of them were a little family for a while. Despite this, Liz and Ted started having issues. They didn't have a lot in common and Ted said that he wasn't able to make himself express his love to her and that because of this, he would agonize about not being able to make it work with her. So that was something that he talked about was this inability to love too. Like he didn't have any empathy or the ability to feel that, you know, feel the perhaps most powerful energy there is love like that's interesting that he completely did not have that capability yeah that's i mean clearly didn't have it because that would make you a fucked up person it would yeah somebody without love is a terrifying individual yeah because love is what ties us all together it makes us care about each other and not want to fucking kill each other so at this point in time in 1974 this is when more disappearances start happening in the lake uh, some Sammamish. No, Sammamish. Sammamish State Park. Sorry. I like that Sammamish. Is it Sammamish? Yep. Okay. I would during the documentary. I was like, we need to make sure we know this. Sammamish. We're gonna fuck this up. Sammamish. <laughs> kind of sounds like Mamwich. It does. <laughs> Sorry. What a weird name. I bet you it's some type of Native American name or something. Probably. But on July 14th, 1974, there was a fair happening at Lake Sammamish State Park in Washington State. There were 40,000 people at the fair that day, and there were tons of different activities going on at the park. It's like a big, just kind of a big festival type thing at at this uh, state park. Tons of people just having fun, hanging out, relaxing, enjoying, unaware that there's a serial killer in the midst. Because during that one day... Two women went missing from that park. That's so wild. He got two at That's once. Wild, isn't it? So brazen and, and 
I don't know. It's crazy. But a yeah. woman named Denise Nasland and another named Janice Ott. And these, by this time, they were the seventh and eighth girls to go missing. Once word got out that the two people were missing, detectives went down to the park to interview people to see if they could figure out what had happened to them. And some witnesses were at the park said that they had seen a person approach both of the women. They said the suspect was described as good looking young man who was wearing an arm cast. And he approached women asking them to help load his sailboat into the car because his arm was injured, which so freaky. I don't understand how these women fell for that. Like, well, back then, like you got to remember, yeah, they didn't have many like instances of people that would do this. There was just this false sense of trust back then. Everyone, everybody like, was innocent. A until, good old boy. Yeah. Like he said, you know, and it, people, it's hard. Like I was thinking about it. If I didn't know as much as I do about the reality of serial killers and crime, then yeah, I, guess I if, might do, I might've done that. Like now I definitely wouldn't. You'd fall a, a stranger strange man back no his, i wouldn't but maybe when i was a teenager load his boat maybe when i was a teenager if i was with a friend and someone asked us I, I would probably feel bad especially if he looked nice and he was like the middle of the day in a busy parking lot i probably would have at that age and i guess if you thought his arm was broken his cast was real yeah you might feel bad for him I think especially if i was with a friend like god that's crazy he took two at once yeah and just literally walked amongst all those people risk being seen by tons and tons of people in order to do it yeah that's wild because he actually witnesses said that they saw uh denise who was laying on the beach with some of her friends and uh, when she left to go to the bathroom which is only about 60 feet away that was when ted or the man approached her again asking her to help to get the boat out of the water Oh, so he didn't get them both at the same time. Okay. No, not at the exact same time. No, he took one. Same but it's day. like, I'm wondering what he did. He must have. Did he just keep one in the car? He must have. Yeah, he must have like. Knocked her out, kept knocked her in the her car. Knocked her out, put her in the car, grabbed another one, knocked her out, put her in the car. God, that's wild. That's crazy. There was also other women who observed the same man approaching Janice while she was on the beach. Witnesses said that the suspect was driving a tan VW bug. That's what's crazy, too, is he was driving this tiny car. Yeah. He wasn't driving a, anything towing a sailboat or anything like that at all, but a tiny bug. So he must have put them in the bug. I mean, there's no way he 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 did anything at the park, right? That would be too risky. No. So he must no have snatched them, knocked them out somehow. Yeah. Maybe he knew, got chloroform or something. Just put him in the back. Yeah, yeah, probably chloroform. Yeah, it's crazy. But this was kind of a, a breaking point in, in the case for investigators and police because they had no idea who this was. But witnesses said that they overheard Janice introduce herself to the strange Denise. man. Janice. Janice? Janice. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Jesus. Janice. <laughs> Janice. We are just fucking up today. Janice. I'm dyslexic. Sorry. No, you're not. <laughs> Janice introduced herself to the man. And then she heard the man respond, Hi. I'm Ted. That was that was a big moment because the witnesses ended up telling the police that whoever the man yeah. was that likely abducted the two girls was named Ted. And they weren't lying because it's not like they knew who he was. No. So a task force. God, I can't believe he used his real name. That's crazy. Yeah, which I, I was surprised too. And again, it goes back to just his ego and how he 
I think he literally felt like he was invincible. He probably thought Ted was a pretty like friendly sounding name too, like Ted. But hey. it was probably more common back then too. Yeah, yeah. Be like Bob or something, you know? Mm. Yeah, ish. Yeah. But back then, you know, back then it was a lot more old school names like that for guys, especially like Tom, Bob, Peter, Ted. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So once police heard that the suspect could be named Ted, a task force was set up to try and figure out who this guy was. At this point, there were eight women missing, all all from and around the Seattle, Washington area. All of them were between the ages of 18 and 21, and they all had very similar appearances, with all of them having brown hair, and they were all white women. At this point, they still didn't have a suspect, and the strongest lead they had was that this dude was named Tom, or T Tom, there I go, Ted. <laughs> Jesus. I like Janice. That's a good one. Janice, and then, what, what were you calling Georgian? Jorgen? No, I was saying Janice. Oh yeah, Janice, <laughs> Janice, Janice, and Jorgen. <laughs> that one, that's uh, just butchered. Yeah, oh. that's really bad. Um, which no disrespect to these victims, my gosh, but <laughs> you are really messing up names today. I am. It reminds me of that one skit that you know. I bet some people will know about. Oh it. yeah, the Key and Peele one. Yeah, where he's where doing they, roll call. Yeah, and he calls like one of the kids like Balake. Yeah. And Deborah instead yeah. of Deborah and yeah. Balake instead of Blake. Yeah, that's funny. Anyway. I'm just like that guy. <laughs> so anyways, the police, they've got this name, Ted. They immediately get to work, get the task force put together. We got to figure out who Ted is. And back then, it's all paper, guys. They had no computers, no database. So they had to do all this shit by hand. And there was a thousand different people that they ha they started with that could be Ted, who could, you know, had a criminal history fit the description, all of those types of things. But eventually, by hand, they were eventually able to narrow down that number to 100 possible suspects uh, that these women saw at the state park. So at this point, it was August 8, 1974, about a month after the two girls disappeared at the fair, and there were still so many unanswered questions about what was going on. And it was on that day when a call came in from Liz who said that she was concerned about her boyfriend named Ted Bundy. She agreed to do a taped interview where she shared that her relationship or that their relationship had started going really south and was very rocky. She said that Ted had mentioned an accident about incident. or incident about when one time he followed a sorority girl late at night. That's creepy. Yeah. So his girlfriend at the time, Liz, was kind of starting to, to take notes and realize there's something weird, sketchy going on with him. I probably should, you know, let the police know. Because I, I think she started thinking that maybe it could have been him. Him, yeah. Liz also stated that she found a bag of women's underwear in her apartment and also found a bowl of house keys. That's oh, fucking... That's so I mean, scary. that would be pretty... T I'd be like, what the... Yeah, why are you taking house keys? She also found a knife under the right front seat of his car. She said that the night Brenda Ball disappeared, Ted was with her and her family. And she said that uh, that he left early that evening and then the next day showed up late to her daughter's baptism so he was gone nobody know where he where he was clearly he could have definitely been the person that took brenda ball the ted that liz described fit the description of the person directly or perfectly the way he looked where he lived and the fact that he went to the university of washington so that places him very close to the crime scenes yes 
and the fact that he drove a tan VW Bug. Everything seemed to match up. So he drives a Bug. Uh, the witnesses said that the man named Ted drove a Bug. So they're starting to connect dots here. They looked further into see if someone was able to uh, able to provide an alibi for Ted that proved that he wasn't at the fair that day when the girls went missing and when they couldn't find any sort of reason to believe that it wasn't him, Ted became the prime suspect. However, investigators prepared a photo lineup that was shown to some witnesses and seven out of the eight women said they were positive that the photo of Ted Bundy was not the suspect Ted, which Ted one of the interesting things about him is he was a master of disguise and a master of changing his appearance. And before he went into this photo lineup, he actually altered his appearance. I think he combed his hair the other way or parted it the opposite way. Just something simple like that. He was hoping would uh, basically throw, throw the witnesses off and seven out of the eight women uh, did not identify Ted Bundy as the suspect. So this is just another example of him just being uh, cunning and devious and just, you know, the fact that he was constantly like two steps ahead of everybody yeah. else, I think really attributed <coughs> to him making this run. But at this point in time, uh, the murders had stopped. They started uh, making investigators wonder if the person left Washington or died. So it kind of went quiet for a while and nobody else died. So... They were like, what happened? Well, where'd he go? And this is when murders start happening in Utah. Ugh. So Ted, being the intelligent individual he was, he knew that he had to get out of Washington, that the heat was starting to get, to get too hot for him. So he said he had to move to a different jurisdiction. So in August 1974, Bunny received a second acceptance from the University of Utah Law School. He left Liz and moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, even though he called Liz often while he was dating other women. While he was there, he became a member of the Mormon Church. Of course he did. Because he's In like... Utah? Yeah, of he's course like, he's... a great place to meet women to take. Yeah, I think, it would, I think he just knew, like... It's a good place to meet. And it's good for his, like... Image. Image, yeah. Like, who's going to blame a Mormon, Mormon law guy? student? Yeah. Serial killer? Yeah. So, yeah, very... Very smart. He was known as a great member of the church and was very involved in all the meetings. They uh, in the uh, Netflix series they interview I think one of the uh, Mormon teachers or preachers or whatever, and he said that like Ted just was totally into it and seemed like a really nice guy. And that's the thing about Ted is he has this like charismatic, almost like charming personality in a in a sick way that he's able to like get people to like him and talk to him and trust him very quickly. During the fall of 1974, a woman named Melissa from Utah was found murdered. She apparently told her father that she was going to meet a friend at a restaurant in Midvale. The friend said that they hung out for a while and then Melissa left to go back home. However, she never made it home. Nine days later, her body was found. She had been beaten and strangled to death, sexually assaulted, just brutalized. Ugh. In addition to Melissa, there were two other disappearances in Utah. A young woman named Nancy Wilcox disappeared after leaving her home and her body was never found. Laura Amy was also vanished or also vanished was later found in the mountains. Her body had been severely uh, assaulted as well. Oh, God. So sad. It is. It's terrible. 
On Friday, November 8, 1974, a woman named Carol was shopping at a mall when she was approached by a man dressed as a police officer who told her that they found someone trying to break into her car and that she would need to come out to the car to see if anything was missing. And this is actually one of the only uh, survivors yeah. of a Ted Bundy attack. She's in the documentary. Very interesting and very scary. So she, Carol goes out to the car with Ted and... And Ted's like, look in the car, look in the car to see if anything's missing. And she's like looking at it. She's like, it looks fine. It looks fine. He clearly wanted her to like lean in there so we could push her in. And Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when she refused to do that, uh, Ted started getting frustrated and was like, you know, I'm getting my car. I'll take you back to the station and, you know, we'll figure figure it out there. They wanted they said that they had some people and they wanted to help identify someone to see if it was them. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so she how. agreed to go. So she was like, okay. But she asked for a badge first. Right. And she asked he him had for a one. badge. Yeah. So. He went, which, where did he get this stuff from? It could have been a fake badge. Yeah, it could have been. what it was. But what's so weird is that he wasn't in a police car. He was driving a VW Bug. So, which I think that raised major <laughs> red flags for Carol. And that's when she started getting sketched out. But she thought, okay, you know, maybe... He's an undercover cop, so she went with him. Oh, God. So they started driving down a side street and then and then suddenly pulled over on the side of the curb, and that's when the man grabbed her and tried to handcuff her. He got one cuff on but couldn't get the other on. He then pulled out a gun and said, I'll blow your head off. Somehow Carol was able to get out of the car. The man tried to hit her with a crowbar when another car started coming. Carol was able to get loose and run to the car. She jumped in the car and had them take her to the police station. She was so lucky. So and little lucky. did she know that she was literally literally escaped one of the most notorious serial killers of all time. Yeah, and then he went and killed someone else right after because he was mad. Yep, four hours later, a woman named Deborah Kent was killed. Oh, God. Deborah was attending a play with her high school. She left the play early to go pick up her brother, and Debbie never even made it to the car. Wow, Jesus. Wow, he went from that not even rattled by that at all, clearly. No. Immediately on to the next thing. Didn't even think that maybe she'll... I'm surprised he didn't try to go after her again. Seriously. To keep her from talking and stuff. Yeah, I'm surprised too. So, while police were searching the parking lot where their, her car was at, they discovered a key that went to a pair of handcuffs. It was soon discovered that the key was the key that fit into the handcuffs that were placed on Carol, concluding that it was the same person. So that at this point, connections are starting to be made between the different cases in Utah now. That the, they have the same person. Because back in Washington, months were going by with no leads as to what or, or what happened to all the women that went missing there. On March 5th, 1975, five bodies were discovered in Taylor Mountain in Washington. A group of student foresters were on Taylor Mountain marking trees when they came across a skull. <coughs> which that would be... I've always wondered that, like, how creepy and terrifying it would be to come across, like, human remains. Really Just, freaky. like, walking through the woods. That'd be freaky as fuck. And honestly, that's, that's like, always a possibility. I mean, if not yeah. human remains, but animal remains. Mm -hmm. A group of student foresters were on, uh, or they ended up, this ended up being the skull of Brenda Ball. Investigators got there and discovered remains of three other women within 100 feet of each other. The remains of Linda Healy, Brenda Ball... Susan Rancourt, Roberta 
Kathleen Parks were all discovered in the same area. That's insane. Yeah. So he took them all up there to dispose of them, which he, in the documentary, he talks about how it was like a garbage disposal for him. Like it was a way for him to dump body parts and have the animals clean it up, clean up his, uh, crazy. clean up the remains for him. Terrible, terrible. The remains of, uh, in addition, just a few miles away from the remains of those four girls, they found remains of two girls from Lake uh, Sammamish. Sammamish. Sammamish State Park Fair, who went missing as well. Denise Naslin and <laughs> Janine. Janice. Ott. Oh my God. <laughs> so this basically solidified the fact that all these kidnappings and murders were done by the same person because of the fact that these women went missing from different areas, but were all found in the same area, right? I mean, I guess it could be multiple killers too that were using one location, but this was when the term serial killer started being used to describe this type of person. Even though they found remains and weren't able to do many tests on their bodies because of the fact they didn't have the technology that we do today, of course. So they weren't able to actually figure out how those bodies were killed or who was handling them through forensic testing, through DNA testing and all the other types of forensic tests we have today, they literally it literally didn't provide any information for them, very little as to what ha- like what actually happened to them and who sure did it. Sure, it was pretty similar to the other girls. Probably wasn't wasn't nice. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was not nice at all. So Ted at the, so Ted is, you know, realizing, you know, heat's back on him in Utah, so it's time to move on to Colorado actually. So Colorado at this time was facing an issue of disappearances actually. And on January 27, 1975, a woman named Karen Campbell disappeared from a hotel in Aspen. Karen was on vacation with her fiance and, and his children and they had just got done eating dinner at a restaurant. Carol and her fiance were sitting in the lobby enjoying the fireplace when Karen decided that she was going to go up to her room to grab a magazine to read. She got in the elevator and that was the last time she was seen. So fucking scary. So he's just rolling around everywhere, actively looking for a victim and just taking advantage of, uh, it's crazy. Like it seems like such small windows of time that he's taking these women. And it's just crazy that nobody's seeing him do this. Yeah, it is. Cause like, obviously like with her and probably some others, it's not like every single woman just willingly like followed him somewhere. So he had to have like literally grabbed them and like forcefully took them wherever he wanted to go. 36 days later, her body was found almost three miles away from the hotel. The coroner was able to estimate that Karen died about two hours after she had dinner with her family. God. After this, there were two other women in Colorado that had gone missing. A 26-year-old woman named Julie Cunningham from Vail and a 24-year-old woman named Denise Oliverson from Grand Junction. They both vanished out of nowhere. One thing that is important to note is the fact that even though all these disappearances and killings were happening within several states of each other, happening in ways that were all similar to each other, with all victims that were similar, the state's investigators still didn't have any sort of communication with each other so they couldn't put the pieces together to create a bigger picture of what was going on. They they literally had no idea 
what was going on from one state to the next, which was all part of uh, Ted Bundy's plan. And yeah, to trick them. Yeah, exactly. To trick them. And he knew by moving states that it decreased his chances of getting caught because in the new state, when he initially got there, they wouldn't know who he was or he'd be able to just cruise around. But it was August of 1975 and almost a year had passed from the time Carol was kidnapped and the police still had no suspect. One night, a highway patrolman was in a residential area in Salt Lake City when he saw a VW bug driving down the street with its lights off. He became suspicious and tried to stop the car. However, it tried to run from him. After chasing it for a while, the car eventually pulled over. The driver was arrested for failing to stop on command of a police officer identified as Ted Bundy, which I'm like, it's interesting that Ted, like the ways that he get he gets caught is like from traffic stops, Yeah, both, which is so weird. Yeah. Because Weird. he was driving erratically or like with his lights So that happened off. to him like, we'll talk about it more, Multiple like three times. times Multiple times, yeah. Of. Wow, what are the chances? But I'm just like, if you're if you're really doing all this crazy shit, like why are you, why would you drive erratically and attract attention to you? Like sometimes I'm like, did he want well, to get caught? Well, they say that like, sociopaths like to drive fast, so there you go. Yeah, but if he's so smart, wouldn't you like want to drive like super proper to evade the police and not get pulled over you would think yeah you would think so they arrested him and they identified him as ted bundy ted immediately wanted to hire a lawyer so he hired bruce lubbock and john o'connell at first the case was just a thought of as not a big deal but they uh just some misdemeanor charges because they didn't know about all the connections that he had to the disappearances in Washington. So they started thinking about that there could be more to this case than just a traffic stop. When the police searched Ted's car, they found several objects, including a ski mask, an ice pick, some strips of torn up sheet, a crowbar, pantyhose, and handcuffs. Not normal at all. No. Ted closely matched the description of the kidnapper of Carol. The crowbar, the handcuffs, the car itself, and the description of the suspect. Carol was asked to come down and take a look at him in the lineup. When Ted was brought into the lineup, he had drastically changed his appearance, like we talked about before, yeah. and he cut his hair. And and when people looked at him, um, Carol was still able to identify him, even though, and she knew he was trying to, um, trying to you know evade yeah. being identified. But she knew he right could away. Easily change his appearance though. Like there was a picture in the documentary of all of the different versions of his hair and stuff and his different appearances, and he looked pretty different in them. He it did. Was pretty interesting. Yeah, but from that moment, so at once she identified him, he was actually charged with her kidnapping. So from that moment on, people started believing that maybe Ted Bundy was a Ted that they were looking for in regards to all the other disappearances. Yeah, you think so? So at this point, the state started talking to each other and started looking at the similarities between the cases. And they actually set up like a multi-state conference in order to like compare case notes and things like that to try to figure out if... Ted Bundy was uh, was the killer behind all of, all of the missing women. During this time, the trial for Carol's case against Ted was being put together. The people that were in the same church as Ted all strongly believed that they had the wrong guy and that Ted was innocent. He literally had like the yeah. Mormon church behind him Completely saying accurate. he was like, yeah, innocent. And his family too. Right. His mom. She held out for a long time on him being innocent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he he definitely had like a uh, supporters behind him uh, during Carol's trial. 
which her trial was on February 23rd, 1976. It had tons of publicity. Ted insisted that he wasn't guilty and said that he still had every intention of completing law school and becoming a lawyer after this. Ted had decided against a jury trial and decided that he wanted to want the case to be before Judge Hansen without a jury. So that means the judge makes the final guilty yep. or not guilty verdict. Um, so that's putting your a lot of faith in the judge's hand. It is. It's an interesting choice to make. It is. Whether it was the right one for him is is up yeah. for debate. But Carol said that during the trial when she was testifying, the court was constantly trying to confuse her or trip her up. But Carol said she was positive that he was the one that took her. And because of this, the judge found Ted Bundy guilty of the kidnapping. Ted was given a 90-day evaluation where he went to the Utah State Prison for an evaluation conducted by psychologists. This was to help the judge determine whether he should send Bundy to prison or put him on probation. During the evaluation, one of the things he was asked to talk about was his childhood and upbringing. The psychologist also talked to Ted's family members, all who said they couldn't believe he would do anything like this. The psychologist also talked to some of his past girlfriends, and one woman specifically told the psychologist that there was a time when Ted and her went swimming together, and Ted held her head underwater and then let her up, take a breath, and push her down again, essentially oh, like drowning so her. So that I think that was enough for the psychologist to start thinking, hmm, he yeah. is capable of being a violent individual. And he also learned about the abusive past of his uh, grandfather. And as well as the fact that Ted didn't know whose real father was and his mother didn't keep him. So he start. I, I mean, the psychologist was smart, made the right decision that Ted should not be a candidate for probation. So the judge sentenced him to something called an indeterminate term of one to 15 years. On October 21st, 1976, while Ted Bundy was in jail, he was confronted by three people informed him that they had a warrant for his arrest for the murder of Karen Campbell from Colorado. They acquired a search warrant for his house. And when they were there, they found a brochure for the Wildwood Inn, which is the same hotel that Karen and her family were staying in was the last place she was to be seen. <coughs> so that's interesting. So Ted was charged with first degree murder with, with premeditation, which at that time meant eligibility of death penalty. One thing that was interesting and very unusual is that Utah allowed him to be extradited to Colorado to have his trial there. And the reason they did this was because the Colorado case had to do with a murder as opposed to a kidnapping. So obviously more serious. And Ted agreed that he wanted to go to Colorado and that he was confident he could win that case as well. So they placed him in a jail in Aspen, which is, you know, not all that far from us up in the mountains, a beautiful place. The X games were there actually. Mm-hmm. And, the new jail wasn't treating him like he was better because he was charming, good, good looking and smart like the other jail was. So this jail was worse for him because he felt like he was getting uh, not the treatment that he deserved. You know, yeah. they just kind of treated him like an animal, like any other inmate. He felt like he was so special. He did. And he was very confident oh, in yeah. everything that came out of his mouth. He, he chose to laugh. Yeah. Like when he was saying that he wanted to be a lawyer and stuff, he's like, oh, I'll get out of here and I'll still get my law degree. Yeah, smiling like, all the time. Just like, like oh. <laughs> no big deal. And he acts like he's some, like like I said earlier, like some famous person. Like he's like a big like movie star or something. That, or oh, he acted how O.J. Simpson did. But O.J. Simpson's famous. 
but even in the more, media, he he still waved and like the whole like acted like he was a well known, famous person that the crowd loved. Why was he always smiling at people and and waving at them? No one was sitting there saying, "Yay, Ted!" You yeah, know, like yeah. it was all this illusion for him to like pretend like he was it's almost like he acting was, like a politician yeah. would if they were under some heat. Just or bizarre. like he was putting on a show or something almost. Definitely putting on a show. But for who? Yeah, exactly. Because everyone's against you. So yeah. people were like screaming out in the streets at him and stuff. And he was smiling back. And and that's where you could say like he's completely not delusional. Yeah. yeah, he pretty much is. But he would Even say though he, he thought guilty. he was normal. He always said, I'm normal. I'm just yeah, a normal guy. Just a regular dude. Just a normal guy. And he insisted that he was 100% innocent and that he was confident that he was going to get out. As the months passed, Ted started doing activities like jumping off the top bunk of a cell over and over again to strengthen his legs. Mm, why? He also said that he was able to get a good measurement of how many feet were between the corner of the courthouse to the alley, from the alley to the riverbed, and then the riverbed to the mountains. He did like little sprints inside his cell space as well, and he ran those so distances smart. over and over again, literally planning his escape i'm sorry but like jumping on and off that's like really smart to build up your legs like he really fucking thought he thought through he everything thought, he clearly was like obsessed with it to the point where that's all he thought about was his escape and everything and keeping things hidden and concealed yeah i mean that was his full-time job yep so he also practiced how fast he could change his clothes from his courtroom attire to his shorts and also cut his hair prior to the court appearance so alternate his parents cut his hair to hopefully escape from the Aspen jail. It's crazy that he even escapes. So before we get into escapes, I just want to thank our last uh, couple sponsors here real quick. At ADP, we understand the importance of building the right team and offer the data insights to help. Just as importantly, our AI technology helps you pay the team accurately. Grow stronger with ADP, HR, talent, time, and payroll. Ted escapes multiple times. So it was the morning of June 7th, 1977, the preliminary hearing, and they had just gotten finished with the first half. We were having a break. Ted was in the back of the court library doing research because Ted opted to represent himself. So he is allowed to, you know, research for his case when all of a sudden people weren't able to find Ted anywhere. It wasn't long until someone from the bottom floor came upstairs and yelled that someone had jumped from the second story window of the courthouse and Ted was on the run. So Ted basically just took off and went straight into the mountains with nothing and days went by uh, and they hadn't found Ted. They had uh, bloodhounds, helicopters. They had a whole, the whole nine yards out there. Yeah, they even dude. got the FBI involved three days after he went missing, but they were not able to find Ted at all, which is actually crazy. really astounding because like Aspen's a really small mountain yeah. town. Yeah. And there's only two, one but there's way there's a lot in, of nature to hide in. Out. You can and, hide yeah. behind stuff, you know? It's just mountains and like little homes and cabins. And Freaky. I can't believe he got out. That's so insane. Yeah. The fact that he escaped in the mountains. Honestly, though, I can't be- fucking believe he was able to just jump out and that they left him in there alone. Like, what idiots. Right? I'm sorry. That's so dumb. Oh, I know. So he goes up there and he ends up <laughs> running into like an abandoned cabin uh, and luckily got into it and stayed there, slept there uh, the first night. 
ate some food. But then after that, he was just kind of like wandering around and then it started sleeting in rain. And he talks about how it just like completely shook him to his core because he was so cold. And he literally like a few days later decided to come back and just turn himself back in because he was so cold and hungry. And before he turned himself in, he actually came back into Aspen and found a car that had keys in the ignition and started and stole it and started driving off. But it didn't take long for an officer who noticed the car driving really crazy. When he pulled it over, it was Ted. So Ted actually stole the car and tried to like escape out of Aspen. I think he got like a mile or so down the road when this officer, obviously they had everything like, you know, officers everywhere uh, noticed him driving erratically again. It's like, Wow. Wonder if it was because he was tired or cold or just he was nervous and maybe he was a bad driver. Or he's just a fucking sociopath and he was Yeah, or just didn't think he'd be caught or anything. They're just reckless. Yeah. So they so well after he got pulled over, he was arrested and he now faced new charges of escape. So fast forward to later that year on December 30th, 1977, Ted was in prison waiting for the murder trial of Karen Campbell. The guard had just dropped off Ted his dinner in his cell and left. And the next morning, the guard came back and noticed that his food was never eaten. And that's when he thought he saw Ted in his bed because there was like a lump in the bed. And when the guard went in there, he realized that it was just a bunch of books under the blanket and that Ted had managed to escape again. What he actually did is he somehow cut a hole in the ceiling of his cell just big enough that he could slip through, which when he was gone for the, for those uh, several days in the mountains, he lost like, or it was almost like a week, I think he was missing. And yeah. he lost like 25 pounds or something. Yeah, it was I mean, crazy. he just wasn't eating anything. Not eating, yeah. He had that mental like strength to get right. through the hunger too, because he did that another time we'll talk about as well. Yeah, so he, he was small enough. He got himself to a weight that he could literally slip through the hole in the ceiling, which went into another apartment of one of the jailers. And he stole some of his clothes and then took off and escaped right out the front doors of the of the jail. So at this point, you know, everybody's like, are you kidding me? How did you guys how did you guys let this guy escape again? And at this and it was this time that they could not find him at all. And he was gone for a while. And at this point, law enforcement's like just freaking out because now we have no idea where he went. He's probably you know, long gone out of Aspen at this point. So they got the FBI uh, involved again, and they actually put Ted Bundy on the FBI, FBI's 10 most wanted list. So it was at this point that Ted, being the individual that he was, decided that I need to get to the opposite side of the country because the likelihood of them knowing about me or the things that I've done will be less yeah. likely. Really space it out. So what's crazy is he actually like managed to get on Greyhound buses and then he went to yeah. to Chicago and then from Chicago he flew down to Atlanta or to Georgia I think and then he took another bus and went down to Tallahassee, Florida. And this is when the murders in Florida happened. So it was January 14, 1978. Ted's been missing for 16 days when all of a sudden news broke that a man broke into is it the Chi Omega? Right. Uh, Kai Kai, Kai Omega Sorority House. Chi Omega. <laughs> Kai Omega Sorority House at Florida State University and murdered two women and almost murdered four, actually. There was two women that 
managed to survive. But the victims were Margaret Bowman, who was molested and beaten to death in her sleep, and Lisa Levy, who was also asleep. Two other girls named Karen Candler and Kathy Kleiner were attacked while sleeping, but ended up surviving, although they had no recollection of who the attacker was. They they kind of I think they uh I don't I don't think the, those two girls actually saw, but other girls that were in the house managed to kind of see him uh, coming in. I think. But that same night, police received a call from someone who was reporting sounds coming from their neighbor's unit of someone getting beat up inside a duplex they lived in. The duplex was about six blocks away from the sorority house, and when police showed up, they found a young woman named Cheryl Thomas who was brutally beaten and murdered. And again, like all of these poor women and victims were um, either raped or sexually assaulted in some way um, before they were murdered. So it was really, really brutal, gruesome stuff uh, that was happening to them. On February 9th, 1978, a 12-year-old girl named Kimberly Leach, who lived in Lake City, Florida, went missing. Uh, from school she walked out of school in the morning and then just disappeared then on february 15 six days later in pensacola florida ted was arrested a police officer saw him driving really slow and just had an odd feeling so he pulled pulled him over and it turned out that the man was driving a stolen tallahassee car and was also carrying over 20 stolen credit cards at first the man refused to give his identity and they said they didn't know who he was however he eventually said his name was kenneth meisner and he was 29 years old from Tallahassee. So basically what Ted did was assume this identity of, of this man named Kenneth Meisner. And the guy, the real guy was actually in jail and contacted the police eventually to say, hey, that's not, that's not me. I'm, in, I'm already in jail, so we don't know who that is. And once police found out that, Ted still refused to like give up his real identity, which back then, driver's licenses were just like little slips of paper, like that you would type like print on a little old fashioned like typewriter type situation, which is so weird. So was, there was no picture associated no. with the ID. You could just wield an ID and be like, this is me. Oh, you could get away with so much shit. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. I just wanted to say, I'm trying not to talk too much and interrupt Josh because I have to go to a doctor's appointment. And I want to make sure we get all the information. in. so that's why I'm being quiet right now. Letting Josh just <laughs> get information out. Yeah, that's all right. And I'm having major jaw pain. So the police were able to eventually figure out that the stolen car he was driving was stolen somewhere near the Chi Omega sorority house. They also discovered that most of the credit cards that were stolen were from a bar that was next to the Chi Omega sorority house as well. Additionally, it was discovered that Ted was living in a house that was only four blocks away from the sorority house before and after the murders happened. It wasn't until the next day on February 16th when police agreed to let his unknown person call or let uh, Ted, who was the unknown person, called his girlfriend Liz if he agreed to give his identity. On the phone, he told Liz that he was sick and was trying to maintain a normal life, but that he couldn't contain this force that was controlling him, which is interesting. Police finally found out that the person they had was Ted Bundy all along and was one of the 10 most wanted criminals in the country. Oh my gosh, can you imagine figuring that out? Yeah, God, and he was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised he didn't escape again there. But luckily in Florida, they had a much more secure prison that they were keeping him in. So escape would have been much harder, especially once they found out he was Ted Bundy. It was later discovered what had happened was Ted escaped from the Aspen jail, um, which we talked about. He actually, what's interesting, when he went to um, Ann Arbor in Michigan, 
after he went to Chicago. And while he was there, he actually went to a football game, uh, the Rose Bowl, his all all monitor, <coughs> alma mater, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> alma mater, University of Washington was playing the University of Michigan in the Rose Bowl. So he just casually went to that. He said that while he was there, he went to a bar and almost got beat up by a bunch of Michigan fans. And then he went to a Methodist church where he spent the night. And then, oh, then that's when God, he went that's down so to That's so risky Atlanta. to go to a bar and get drunk and fight with people. What the fuck? He was crazy. Oh, I know. It's crazy. Completely insane. So at this point, like police are really starting starting to connect the dots in Florida and and realizing that the person that, you know, murdered the sorority girls was likely the same person that took Kimberly Leach, the 12 year old schoolgirl, And they were actually able to track the purchases from stolen credit cards and figure out that he had spent the night in the Lake City Holiday Inn the night before Kim went missing, which the hotel was less than three miles from the school. That's crazy. That is. That's so creepy. Like he, literally he would just act on impulse. It seemed yep. like he didn't as plan soon too as he, much. No, not too much, but he was such a like quick thinker. He just like could process everything so mm -hmm. quickly mm -hmm. and decide what to do. So in April 1978, Ted was officially charged with murder from both the Kai Omega and Kim Leach murders. One thing that investigators were able to do was imprints of Ted's teeth and match the imprints to a bite mark that was left on one of the sortie victims' bodies on uh, the butt, actually. Oh, Further God. tying him to the murder. I can't murders. believe he would bite people. It's so gross. Yeah, which the bite marks were like the uh, people that saw it said that it would literally look like somebody took like the hardest bite they possibly could and then did it again because it left that much of so an imprint. Gross. So gross and sad. So on July 7th, 1978, Ted was formally indicted and charged with two counts of burglary, two counts of first degree murder and three counts of attempted first degree murder in, in the state of Florida. So let's talk about the sorority uh, girls trial. So it was now May 9th, 1979 and it was time for Ted's pretrial. That was the first time a trial was going to be covered by so much mass media. There was literally media from all 50 states. There was like nine other countries there. This was like the first time they were doing real like live feeds yep. and everything. So it, it was a really big deal. And they, it was also the first time really that a uh, they were letting cameras into the courtroom and stuff too. Yes, that was different too. Which at this point, the defense's goal was to try and save Ted from getting the death penalty. The court made an offer to Ted that if he pleaded guilty to the crimes, he would be saved from the death penalty. But on June 1st, 1979, Ted Bunny entered the court, and to everyone's surprise, he rejected the plea bargain because he thought he was smarter than all the lawyers and the judge. And after this, a public defender, Mike Minerva, uh, Minerva asked to withdraw from the case because he's like, this guy's not even going to take our counsel, so I don't want to be a part of his sinking ship. Which the judge denied this request because he didn't want to draw out this case any longer than needed. In which Mike changed his role to advisory counsel. And meanwhile, Ted himself wanted to be involved in the case. And so the judge allowed him to represent himself as his own lawyer, even though he technically wasn't a lawyer. Which is really crazy uh, to think about. Fast forward a month to July 1st when the pretrial was over and the real trial was about to begin on the deaths of the sorority girls, the case was moved from Tallahassee to Miami due to the fact that people in Tallahassee were too familiar with the case to be on a jury. By this time, a lawyer named Margaret Good joined the defense team. The defense was making the argument that Ted Budney was incompetent and that he wasn't capable of understanding all of the evidence that was brought against him. 
Because of this, they decided to hold a competency hearing. The judge ruled that he was indeed competent and yeah. also in charge of the defense, which is crazy to yeah, think that's about. Fucking well, like wild. is unheard of. Yeah, it really is. This this judge was fucking weird. Yeah, it was really weird. So because of this, Ted was able to essentially like say whatever he wanted and and just do really weird things. He'd say really irrational things, um, but he just thought he was outsmarting everybody. He and he also started making requests uh, to the judge for things like more outside time, more time in the library, more conference periods, access to a typewriter, a change of menu because he was sick of eating the same grilled cheese every day. So he's totally taken advantage of the situation. And whether or not he thought he could actually like get away with it, I think he just he saw a window of opportunity to try and manipulate yes. and take advantage of the you know very I don't know almost incompetent judicial system back yeah. then when it was time for the police officer who found one of the bodies to testify ted bundy was the one who got to cross-examine him because he was leading the defense so the prosecution brought up the the officer that responded to the sorority crime scene and then you know and their whole goal was to not bring up the gore or anything crazy that you know they actually saw there and focus more on the the victims but then as soon as he finished with him, Ted went up to the stand and cross-examined this guy and literally had this guy explain in vivid detail the wounds, yep. the like uh, he was amount of blood, it. where they were uh, punctured, all of these what really... What position was yeah, she laying in when really you arrived? Really creepy, weird shit. It, was, it sounded like something from someone who knew what condition she was in and exactly what that guy yeah. thought. He like was prov asking questions that he knew would pr be provocative. Yeah, and there's video really of him just like... I Clearly can't believe the it. judge allowed and that. And the judge is just like... It's fucking so weird. Just sitting there chilling, like so acting like no weird. big deal that a potential serial killer is cross-examining a witness. Like, what the hell? And Yeah, and I mean, he made this guy say all this graphic shit in front of all these people. And at one point, the defense attorneys were so fed up with Ted's behavior in the courtroom that they just got up and left. And during that trial, a forensic odontologist, Dr. Richard Severin, testified when it came time to talk about the bite marks on one of the victim's body and that they could prove that these bite marks matched Ted. So this was actually the kind of, I think, the evidence that kind of sunk his ship is that they had this expert uh, witness come forward and he he basically took, they took measurements of, of Ted Bundy's mouth and his teeth and molds of his teeth. Yeah. And they basically came you know in front of the jury was like his teeth which were just like a crooked teeth matched up with the yeah. bite marks on the victim mm -hmm. i mean what else more evidence that do you need had, that's really. like you're done yeah but the problem with that is is that today that's considered junk science like there's no actual real science that you can do like they don't use that today bite marks because like your teeth how are you supposed to like line up exactly what your teeth are you know it's not definitive evidence it's not definitive but i think it still can be presented as a possibility yeah but i read a thing sure that, it's seen it that the they don't even really do it anymore unless it's like mm. really and that was the thing is it just showed like basically the defense is like this is just you know it's a reach because we don't know for sure if you know those are his teeth just because they're crooked teeth doesn't mean that it was ted's crooked teeth that made the bite marks and then on july 20th during the trial ted refused to show up for court that day 
Apparently a guard went to go get Ted from his cell and he refused to get up. And then the guard noticed that the lock had been jammed with wet toilet paper. Ted had stuffed wet toilet paper in the lock to keep it from locking. The judge charged him with contempt of court for failing to show up. Later on that morning, they were eventually able to get Ted to show up in the court, which there's a scene in the uh, the documentary on Netflix that's really interesting to see Ted come in there and he's like trying to make his case and shaking his finger at the judge and stuff because he was upset that he felt like the so, yeah the court and prosecutors and jury were all just railroading him like mm-hmm. he wasn't getting fair treatment. Mm-hmm. But on July 24th, it was time for the counsel to make their closing arguments and for the jury to start deliberating. And after six and a half hours, the jury returned to the courtroom to give their verdict. It was announced that the jury found Ted guilty on all of the charges against him and that he was eligible for the death penalty. Mm -hmm. God, I wish we had some more time. I'm trying not to talk so that we don't run out of time because we literally have like minutes (laughs) Um, before I have to go to the doctors. I didn't realize how long we would this episode would go. Um, but yeah, I wish we had more time to talk about the death penalty and our opinions on that. Cause yeah, it's a whole nother conversation. I'm kind of like somewhere in the middle, but yeah. So, so basically continue. Yes. So basically Ted ends up getting the death penalty in that case of the sorority girls. Um, they ended up giving him that, that sentence and, he also went and stood trial in November of 1979 uh, for the murder of Kim Leach. And a lot of people thought it was a waste of time to even try him for that since he was already facing the death penalty. But the prosecutors thought we absolutely have to have to charge him guilty. And they wanted to just reinforce that death penalty. And they yeah. had tons and tons of evidence tying Ted Bundy to the murder of Kimberly Leach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was blood in the van. There was all these fibers of Kim's clothing in the van. They also found Ted's fibers on Kim's clothing. So clearly Ted Bundy took this poor little girl and then uh, sexually assaulted her and murdered her. And the prosecutor in the documentary said that when they found yeah. this girl's body, he's like, I've never cried. I haven't cried since I was like 13. And he's like, I don't know, 16. Yeah. And he's like, the day that we found Kim- Kimberly's body, I just cried. I would too because My God. he's like she was so young and and the 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 brutality of of what she went through based upon the state of her body was just unreal like unlike anything he had ever seen before just evil evil shit so eventually on february 10 1980 it was announced that the jury reached a guilty verdict and also came to the conclusion that the death penalty would be appropriate so he ended up being charged with it twice now, after he's, uh, they conclude with with that trial, Ted is still, still professing his innocence and saying that he was wrongly accused. He's got his um, his mom behind him still, and uh, I believe he even uh, ended up marrying a girl that was like a friend, a family friend. Well, he proposed to her like in, in court. the courtroom. Yeah, it was so bizarre. It's really bizarre. And so they were like, we're going to fight this. We're going to appeal the death penalty. Yeah. And he was just in such delusion. And basically he sat on death row and he said he was doing a bunch of drugs and he just was just kind of losing it. And Carol was the woman that we're talking about that he had like that had his back, said he was innocent, kind of spoke out for him and they actually got together and she would come and visit him in prison and 
they actually had sex while she was visiting him in prison somehow and she got pregnant and had a child named rosa with ted and this is uh where the journalists that come in and record all these tapes of ted talking about his crimes and everything yeah basically his entire life it was like his chance to do it um all of that's in this documentary, which we'll link for you guys. You should definitely, you watch, definitely it if you want to watch it. Definitely want to watch it after listening sure. to this, because to hear it from him is just so eerie and creepy. Yeah. And it really gives you more understanding than we can give you just talking about him. Mm-hmm. But over the next couple of years, he tried to get lawyers to get appeals, and eventually they took it all the way to the Florida Supreme Court. Um, and his final appeal, which was January twentieth, nineteen eighty nine. Uh, was rejected and basically the Florida governor Bob Martinez signed a death warrant and so he was officially um, assigned to be executed in the electric chair on Tuesday January 1989 and in his final days Ted actually confessed uh, to the crimes uh, to the FBI actually went and, and got a bunch of intel from him and actually used him to get information about serial killers and profiling and Ted tried to help them but <coughs> Ted eventually confessed to being involved up to 30 murders of young women across the country, spanning five or six states. And some have speculated that it may even be more than that. Some have said it could be even to the triple digits because there was one point in which I think he indicated that it could be the triple digits. So for all we know, there's at least 30, could be more. And out of those 30, there's still... A bunch there's a I think at least six or eight that are unidentified still we have no idea who they are we've never found the remains there's many victims of his we've never found his remains or anything and he talked a little bit about what he did with some of the bodies and shit it's just really crazy yeah it's really gross he'd take their heads and he would keep their heads and he uh confessed to being uh into necrophilia which is Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, having sex with a dead body yeah. and just, cr- just really creepy, disgusting, disgusting things. Um, he was just a vile, vile, vile human, but he did confess and he tried to get religious at the end, of course. But at 5 a.m. on the day that he was scheduled to be executed, he was fed the traditional breakfast of steak and eggs. And that morning there were hundreds of people who showed up outside the prison to have a celebration of his death. Literally, there is like a almost like a carnival going outside of the prison where he was because people were so happy and excited to see him get executed and just taken his life taken that they had fireworks and there was like shirts that said burn Bundy burn and there's just all these little things uh, that were celebrating his yeah, execution people were so happy on the day he was executed. Yeah, people were just so disgusted by him, especially because of his arrogance and his the way he was acting. Yeah, I mean, Ted just Bundy's so full of himself. Freaky, freaky and fuck. He was, and when he he got the electric chair, which we don't, I don't, I'm pretty sure we don't even use the electric chair anymore yeah, anywhere. What? But basically, they strap you into a wooden chair, and they put these, they put like a coil around your uh, one of your ankles, and then you have something on your head. And they basically just jolt you with huge amounts of electricity, which eventually, I believe, stops your heart. Um, but that's it's so bizarre. It's a rough way to go. Yeah. And Ted, sucks. they said when he walked in, was just like a ghost, and that he was, he was like very afraid of it. He was very scared to die. Well, you know what, bitch? 
it's your fucking time. Like, I, I, I don't know. I know people disagree on the, the death penalty and believe people should. Like, you never want to take life. But whatever. <laughs> I feel like someone like Ted Bundy fucking deserves it. Like, honestly, I wish we could do something worse to him. Yeah. He, like, think of all the pain he dealt onto so many people at the end oh of their God. lives. He's honestly lucky he only got a little jolt of electricity and was yeah, done. Yeah, was dead in a few minutes, probably. Yeah, you versus... know, well fucking deserved. And what a bitch. He was trying to get out of it, and he was he kept saying, like, oh, they're not going to get me. They're not going to be able to to do it. Like, they'll, they won't. I'll kill myself before they can do it. But then, you know, you can't hide forever. You can't run forever. And he was just completely delusional. Yeah, I mean, no normal human wants to watch another human die. But, like, one of the... I think it was a prosecutor in in his case who went to his execution actually had really interesting things about to say about the death penalty like obviously not in every case does someone deserve the death penalty but depending on on the uh, enormity of your crimes like if you're a serial killer Mm -hmm. you're killing mass numbers of people like all those people lost their life people like I just can't fuck with that if you ever do that to someone i just like i can't respect your life enough if you had no respect for someone else and literally treating them like objects like sex objects yeah. and then and then discarding them like a just take, used condom tearing them much. apart yeah. disgusting it's horrible it's really so gruesome and he deserved it evil what he fucking did burn in hell i don't believe in hell yeah, but I, still burn wherever the fuck he went yeah i mean I, i'm glad he got executed and, and rightfully so bye, i mean bye. he doesn't deserve to live anymore and who knows like what if he escaped again or something like fuck yeah they should have they should have locked his ass down as soon as they caught him the first time yeah and the fact that he and the (laughs) fact that again yeah and he escaped custody in colorado and then killed more people yeah imagine how you'd feel if you were the jailer that just wasn't paying attention when ted bundy escaped and then now yeah. all these other girls are dead Ugh, because terrible. you let him out of cuss like Just you let terrible. him escape I'm sure their family's so pissed it's fucking crazy but yeah so if you guys want to check out that documentary definitely go listen to the ted bundy tapes very interesting stuff that he provides us it's just interesting to hear him talk and all of this will make more sense to you um if you haven't seen it and uh it's it is very interesting but beware it is it is pretty disturbing so yes um but yeah i mean serial killers are are just are fascinating in a weird way just to even contemplate people you know just the psychology have the ability to do it yeah. and yeah i guess we'll never know if there was something an actual origin of the serial killer issue so hopefully you guys enjoyed today's episode if you yes. did like subscribe but yeah that will be it for us today we will see you guys next week stay safe out there and stay woke see you next time guys know a spot but not just a spot the spot actually with the all-new nissan frontier you know a bunch of them but the key to these great spots being able to reach them in the first place your spot is out there find your frontier in the all-new 2022 nissan frontier with standard 310 horsepower advanced tech and 281 pound foot of torque